multiples right now are very attractive. And the work that we've done is, yes, there, there could be a 10% negative earnings revision to a number of our portfolio companies. But it's entirely possible that multiples are up 10 or 15% by the time those revisions come into place. So when we've done the you know, high, medium, you know, low expectations around you know, what's going to happen if earnings adjust down, we believe the multiples are just too attractive right now uh, to give up the opportunity uh, to miss out on any recovery because at least for the companies we own, uh, it is very difficult to envision 25% or greater hits to their earnings. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Rob Cantwell and his team at Upholdings to discuss technology and successful growth investing. The pullback in tech stocks in 2022 has many asking questions about investing in tech, and we talked to Rob and his quant analysts about how we got here, the drivers of technology returns, the impact of inflation on tech stocks, and how and where we may identify opportunities in tech. With technology representing the largest sector in the market today, and also in many investors' portfolios, we don't think this discussion could be more timely. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Rob Cantwell from Upholdings. Rob Lars, thank you guys for joining us today. Great to be with you, Jack and Justin. Rob, I guess the first time around wasn't too painful, so you're back for round two on uh, excess returns. <laughs> yeah, in spite of what the market has done since the last time we got together, yeah, we're, we're, still, we're still kicking. Yeah, well, we couldn't think of a better person to have back to talk about the topic that we're going to talk about today, which is technology companies and tech, tech stocks. Um, for many investors, I think this sector is a very important sector for them. I mean, it's not only a very heavy weighting in market cap weighted indices, but I just think overall in investors' portfolios, you know, tech has become, you know, more and more important. And so just given what's happened in the markets this year with Laws and I were talking before the podcast started, and I think uh, the Nasdaq's down something like 27, 28%. So this is a, obviously a big loss in the market, big loss in tech stocks specifically. Um, and we're going to talk about, I think, that and, and sort of maybe some opportunities in the market today. But before we do, I wanted to start with just sort of talking about how we got here or maybe the last decade in tech up until this year. Um, so it's obviously been a very, very strong decade for technology stocks, probably the best performing sector out there for investors. And, you know, one of the, I think, struggles for people like Jack and I that tend to run more traditional quantitative strategies is, you know, we sort of missed it with those. It's like our models and our view of those tech stocks, you know, even five, 10 years ago is these things are, you know, still overvalued based on most standard valuation metrics. So where we want to start with you is, you know, where, what, what do you think? people like Jack and I and models like we run, where did we get it wrong with those technology names? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating place to start. Uh, I don't know that you guys have gotten anything wrong. I just don't know that these were the things you were looking for. Uh, so I, it actually is really helpful. So uh, to, to use one specific example as a use case, and I'm, I'm gonna talk about Apple for a minute. Um, before I do, the, the investor that I learned from, Roger McNamee, he led the, uh, the T. Rowe Price Science and Technology Fund back in the 80s. 
And you know, he, he built his career around growth investing. And one of the things that you know, he was always famous for saying uh, was that the, the best products um, always outperform any forecast that any financial analyst can build for them. And we'll attempt to help dissect some of the reasons why that's the case. And what's the difference about what drives the business versus what can get modeled into an Excel sheet. So using something as simple and as commonly known as Apple, uh, 2007, it was trading at six times revenue, uh, but at a 41 PE, and it was growing about 40%. And if you were a financial analyst looking at that, you're like, well, that 40% is gonna taper down into something in the lower double digits. And that's a really high PE, that's a pretty high revenue, they sell hardware, that's a really cyclical device. And so that's a scary setup to, to come into. And yet here we are 15 years later, the stock has compounded 24% over 15 years. It still trades at six times revenue, but its PE has compressed to about 23 times. So the two things that we see happen the most often that keep people out of growth stocks is one, they underestimate the duration of growth for the ecosystem that has been architected. And then secondarily, they underestimate the, uh, the expansion of margins that gets to kind of ride along with such a sustained growth rate over such a long period. And we'll get into it later in here in, in terms of what have been bigger driver, bigger themes that have driven you know, tech and earnings over the past 15 years. But I would, I would really just start with those two things of underestimating the durability of the growth rate and underestimating the margin expansion that happens from companies that are able to sustain growth rates like that for so long. Are there ways as a discretionary investor that you're able to look at certain variables, certain metrics that help support that underlying thesis or those characteristics? Like, can you differentiate those companies that can maintain the growth rates and the margins? Um, what, what things do you look at? Sure. Uh, and this is where I, I think some of the work that, that VCs do can be really helpful because they, they attempt to do total addressable market work. They, they tend to go into and say, you know, what, what Facebook is building is bigger than what any uh, television advertising agency has ever been capable of because they've captured so much time. And so the way, so for example, the way a growth investor looked at meta platforms a decade ago said, well, we've got all these dollars in TV and we've got this much time spent in TV, but we've got this much time being spent in social media, but only this many dollars. And so at a minimum, you're willing to underwrite the potential for that gap to close in dollars versus time. But where the compounding really sets in is that, that those social media assets were able to keep compounding the amount of time spent on those services over those periods. And so jumping back to the Apple example, in 2007, when people were trying to forecast iPhone sales, they were never thinking that, well, gosh, if there's a billion iPhones out there, then they're also going to be selling watches and headphones and chargers and all these other things that help add margin to the ecosystem. And similarly, in the, in the social media environment, when you're able to capture that attention and build a captive distribution channel, people were posting, it was mostly games and Zynga coupons. and Nobody could have forecasted that there would be quick swipe video product and e-commerce embedded into social media. And so well, the, the signs that we tend to look for is the, the user behaviors around under-monetized time or purchase behavior. And those will often lead you into the places where there's the potential for sustained growth outside of what folks are forecasting in the near term. 
you know, speaking of Apple, I think, and I think our friend Tobias Carlyle has said this, I think Buffett put, you know, roughly 30 billion into Apple and in what was it, 2017, 2018? I think it's worth, you know, 130 billion today. And uh, Toby says it's the greatest, the greatest trade of all time, just because Buffett, you know, took 30 billion and basically turned it into, into 120. And that's just an example of an investor sort of looking at a company like Apple, a technology company that maybe he didn't understand, but um, you know, realizing that the fundamentals sort of support such a such a big investment. Yeah, I mean, what was you know when we when we look at that, uh, Buffett has done so many incredible things, uh, but one of them has been to not be afraid to step into industries when everyone else thinks it might be over. And it was actually as early as 2016 when Buffett you know started making the big the big Apple investment. And that wasn't a, wasn't a dumb time to do it. The number of phone manufacturers had shrunk massively. You were basically down to a duopoly between Samsung and, um, and Apple. You technically had Xiaomi, but they were really kind of captive in, in China. And so it's interesting to see this move for him work so many times where he cares less about how much the industry is growing and he cares more about, well, how high is the market share now of the business that I get to buy? And you know, getting Apple at 10 times cash flow with a you know, greater than 60% market share clearly has proved out to be a pretty, uh, pretty good step. How would you respond to this idea that you know, technology companies and the stocks have benefited from historically low interest rates? I mean. Um, I think there's, you know, maybe potentially you hear two arguments that one, these companies were, you know, borrowing money, um, maybe at levels that, um, were so cheap and then, you know, doing things like buying back stock or whatever. And that was kind of helping the stock prices. But then two, this sort of trend in the market where just the market was awash with liquidity and people and investors were coming up the risk curve and just buying, you know, growth, like or tech-like names. I mean, do you think there's any validity in, in sort of that or, or, or no? I think much more in the latter than the former. So uh, growth in a low interest rate environment with a lot of low yielding assets, inevitably you get a certain amount of yield chasing. And you definitely saw that in the multiples of a number of companies. This, this started back with Uber back in 2014 and 15, they were raising money in private markets at a $100 billion valuation. In 2015, there was a little private market bubble that was happening. It was, it was less communicated because there were much less people accessing it, but it was that same FOMO concept of, man, this is where all the best returns are, so I gotta get in there and I'm willing to pay any price in order to do it. And in 2021, you saw a really similar event take place there's actually one other, uh, one other thing I would add to this, which was in the beginning of 2021, when you had the GameStop fiasco, that actually scared a lot of other hedge funds out of some of their best shorts. And one of the benefits of a, of a well-functioning shorting ecosystem is it puts pressure on the other side of stocks that don't get so much benefit to them. And when you saw a lot of large hedge funds say, gosh, we don't want to have GameStop level risk in what we're doing, uh, you actually saw a lot of the down pressure on some of these crappier tech assets go away. And we think that as much as the FOMO was one of the drivers that led to some of that uh, 2021 uh, excess, uh, excess pricing. What do you think about the duration component of this? You know, what I was... I was thinking about Tesla the other day and like one of the things about having like not necessarily cheap capital, but really long duration capital is it's allowed a lot of these companies that maybe may not have made it, I think, to make it like, you know, you could argue there were points in Tesla's, you know, 
development where if they didn't have access to like capital that was you know with people who, who were thinking on a very long time frame they might not have made it and i'm i'm wondering what you think about that and, and if you're worried about that going forward like if if that long duration capital is not available will some of these great ideas you know be able to make it to fruition like they have in the past decade there's a couple of pieces in there um the first I'm going to say is there is a very big difference between uh, growth companies that have figured out a business model that generate cash somewhat early in their life cycle and uh, those that require an enormous amount of upfront capital investment in order to get to, say, the level of production of a Tesla. And in our experience, it's the businesses that are actually self-funding, call it within the first five to seven years of their existence, that tend to be the companies that have 30 or 40 year lives that just blow investors' minds from what the potential uh, ultimately is in terms of the valuation they're able to capture. Uh, Tesla, I believe, is a, it's a much more complicated um, uh, 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 company because of its, its, its financing has been all over the place. They, they were talking about becoming a private company just a few years ago. Uh, they were able to make it through as a, as a public market company. It may have actually been a good thing for them to have that public shareholder pressure and, and getting profitable faster. The, the challenge in the, in the uh, car economy as a whole is that if you say you were to take, for example, um, U.S. spending on vehicles and GDP, for now more than 20 years, that has been a declining. So... So that's one issue is you have as a share of all spend in the economy, vehicles are actually a declining portion of it. Uh, the second issue is that uh, unlike Apple, um, because Tesla is still a car company, the average selling price per Tesla continues to fall. And as a, as a long-term growth investor, that has always been, it's like semiconductors and industries in which you have rapidly declining prices of your unit products tend to be extremely cyclical industries. And that happens because there's such a huge level amount of CapEx investment that they're having to cover costs on their fixed expenses or their fixed upfront outlays. And that's why they're willing to push the costs down, excuse me, push the prices down on the vehicles that they're selling in order to recoup that. So you've got a really capital intensive beast. It's likely to be very cyclical. This very may well not have been the top for Tesla. It could have another euphoric moment years from now. But as a capital intensive category in a declining share of the country's output, that's a very challenging setup for a growth investor. Rob, can you just speak to um, the declines that we've seen in technology and growth names and sort of put it in context of, you know, relative to other points in history? How does it look and what's I mean, what's the big driver here? Is it recession risk? Is it higher rates? Is it the businesses were just very overvalued? What's going on? We've been, we've been trying to bring more perspective to this recently. So let's, take, let's start with the S&P 500. Um, in the last six months, the S&P 500 has gone from 40 to $32 trillion. So you've had $8 trillion of wealth leave the system. Uh, that $8 trillion represents about 40% of today's GDP. If you go back to 2008, we had about a $5 trillion write down in equity market assets. That again represented about 40% of GDP. So on a pure wealth relative to the size of output of the economic system, we are in an extremely comparable period to just 14 years ago. Now to your specific question about how much has tech been a driver of this component, it was certainly one of the first. So 
Amazon alone is responsible for half a trillion of that eight trillion wipeout that we've seen. So across the entire economy, you've got one company uh, representing such a significant chunk of that. And e-commerce as a category in particular, we have, we have seen has been a key driver of, um, uh, of shortcomings in a lot of other downstream industries. So look no further than what Amazon's you know, quarterly retail sales are doing. And that's been a leading indicator for the digital advertisers and for a lot of the other variable expense or variable revenue players in the ecosystem. And to, to your point, I think actually when you combine stocks and bonds, I believe this is even a greater loss than 2008 because bonds have been going down simultaneously. I think the loss of wealth, you know, has been so massive during this that I think it might even dwarf 2008. Um, when you guys, you know, w when we went through the period where value struggled for a decade, um, you know, we kind of took a step back after and said, all right, what are the lessons we can learn from this since, you know, we've primarily been value managers. I'm wondering, as you've kind of gone through this, what are some of the lessons you've maybe learned managing a growth portfolio during something like this? Well, one of the you know, big investments you know, we made a year ago was we already had the fundamentals side of our, our team built. Uh, and so you know, doing the diligence on individual companies and, and that sort of analysis was, was pretty uh, was well, well, well built. But on the quantitative side, we actually hadn't done much yet. And you know, Lars, who's with us, who we'll hear from in a little bit, uh, he joined us just a little over uh, a year ago and has helped build out a lot more risk management tools uh, and security identification around some of the processes that we already have. And so what we're trying to do today is build these two in lockstep of having a really smart, you know, quantitative approach that helps us see risks that we're taking that are not viewable to the fundamental stock picker that's sitting inside of transcripts all day. Um, and you know, trying to get those two to work uh, in harmony together. So to give you an example of an extreme, so it's, it's been very well uh, publicized in the news about hedge funds that have had a hard year, Tiger's down a lot, KOTU uh, meanwhile hasn't been. And the biggest difference between those two firms is that Tiger has remained a fundamental stock picking firm, while KOTU years ago started investing much more heavily into their quantitative analysts. And the performance of those two funds during this sell-off couldn't be more different because there were a lot of quant signals that were screaming and going red back in October and November saying, gosh, some of these really exciting younger companies, their fundamentals are still great, but gosh, these valuations have approached levels um, that have no precedent in history. And there's a lot of risk here. And we certainly took risk out of the, uh, out of the portfolio when we saw that. Clearly, we didn't take enough for the magnitude of the drawdown that we've experienced here. Uh, but I think that I, I think the importance of layering a quantitative strategy onto any stock picking process has has been the biggest learning as becoming a really essential tool here. One of the one of the things a lot of investors tend to do when you go through periods like this is they tend to look to history and say, you know, what can I compare this to? And you know, one of the big things you've seen this period compared to is two thousand. Um, and so since you're an expert in the space and since you, you know, you've, you've managed money through these periods, I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about, like, what do you see as some of the similarities that went on in 2000 and what do you see as some of the major differences now? One of the biggest differences has been back in 99 and 2000, the, uh, the definition of tech was pretty narrow. And the difference is today there have been a lot of industries built around mobile device proliferation, um, cloud software tools. There's been a lot of technological development in the last 20 years, such that today 
it, you could you could almost call any company a tech company to a certain degree. Um, and so the definition of what is a technology company has has a much wider lens to it. So just from a fundamental standpoint, that's that's something that's very different about today versus uh, back then. Uh, as it pertains to um, capital raising, valuations, ripping off investors, honestly, blockchain today feels more similar to you know 1999 internet than 2022 internet. You know, compares to 1999 internet. Uh, there's just you 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 have robust franchises with you know stable investor bases that you know sure short term stock prices are down but you know, Meta and Google and even Apple the ability of these businesses to continue to compound capital is unlikely to be hampered by the volatility that we've experienced in the last 12 months. By contrast, the blockchain ecosystem is likely going to look a lot different a few years from today as a result of all this pressure and liquidity that's come out of the system. So those are some of the parallels that we see to the to the 99 uh, 2000 period. You alluded this to a little uh, a little but to me as an outside someone outside the tech space it seems to me like the companies today are just much better than they were in 2000 like there's better quality companies there's companies that are more companies generating either generating positive cash flow or who, who can generate positive cash flow if they want to i mean do you think that's a fair comparison absolutely i mean we've uh, our, our portfolio uh you know in king looks tech to a lot of people but we don't we don't think of it that way uh, we we think of Meta as you know our generation's AT and T. It is a communications company that's a little, a little bit more capital intensive than than your average tech company. Uh, but the connecting people in that way is a very durable asset that has a really long duration timeline attached to it. Um, now, not every technology company has called it crossed that chasm of you know changing from a disrupted uh, you know technology into a you know, long-term growing as some percent of GDP uh, business, uh, but we definitely think there's, there's a handful of examples like that. The, uh, so I'd say the digital advertisers as, as a group, is, they're a mature industry. People are spending more time online than they are on their TVs. So as you, as you, as you approach the media space, you know, we, we no longer see that as a tech, tech or non-tech. We simply view it as, you know, this is where the time and dollars are going. The enterprise cloud business is still a little bit in between that transition. So the, the IBMs and the Oracles and the SAPs of, of yesteryear when they were building on-site uh, you know, premise hardware, um, those businesses started getting disrupted about 10 years ago. So we're not 20 years into that transition yet, we're only 10. And that's the one where we think there's the, the most you know, opportunity for growth investors over the next 10 years because the pace at which Companies are adopting digital tools to either enhance what their employees are doing or replace what their employees are doing, we think is the area of most rapid change in business behavior um, right now. One of the other differences I noticed, you know, we were we were involved in an internet company back in 2000, an internet company that didn't make it. And, you know, one of the things I've noticed this time is it seems like everybody is focusing on cash flow a lot quicker. So last time when we went through this, you know, it took a while for everybody to kind of understand what was going on. But now it seems like, you know, I know Uber on their call was talking about cash flow a long time ago. Like every VC seems to have a presentation out now saying to their companies, you know, focus on cash flow. So I'm wondering if that'll make this maybe a little bit better than last time in that everybody seems to have focused very quickly on, you know, we need to generate cash flow, we need to reduce burn. So what's interesting is that when, when markets get scared like this, 
the what, investors focus tends to move really quickly. So as recently as nine months ago, there was too much emphasis on top line growth rates. And eight months later, now all the emphasis is on cash flow generation. But make no mistake, there is another step deeper to fall. We, we did experience this more in 2008, which we're not experiencing today, which is where's your balance sheet at? Uh, because today we're not having balance sheet problems. And that's because the crisis isn't happening in, the, in over levered banks. Uh, you have, um, instead what you have is growth companies that have raised too much cash. And now investors are looking at this and saying, why did you overcapitalize an opportunity that didn't actually have that much cash flow potential behind it? Robinhood is arguably the crowning example here. I, you got to check on the day, but I, I believe they're trading below their cash balance. Uh, and that's because the, the public investor looks at that. If, if we owned it as a private company, we could take that cash and we could ensure its deployment. But as a minority public investor, you have absolutely no ability to influence what happens with that cash. And if management burns it out in a few years of operating capital and raises more money at this very depressed share price, you've diluted the heck out of your, out of your shareholders. So we, we haven't yet approached balance sheet crisis level. Um, in this, in the drawdown that we're in. Uh, but I, my honest answer is I think that this is a, uh, it is a symptom of the cycle that we are in, that there's so much focus on cash flow generation, but there is still ample venture capital funding out there that is investing into new businesses that are less than five years old, that are still incinerating capital to put you know new companies together. When you look at the overall valuation of tech after this decline, where do you think we are? I mean, you know, we can, as, as quant investors, we can use simple things like PE, which we've kind of already talked about are probably not all that valuable here. But wh where do you think we are in terms of tech's cheapness or expensiveness after this decline as a whole? Well, at a high level, it's multiples are actually better than they were, you know, coming out of the first quarter of COVID. Uh, but at a high level, we're seeing that multiples today are actually better than they were in the first quarter of 2020 when all the market circuit breakers were going off. And that was a combination of two things. There was actually quite a bit of improvement in fundamentals from the last couple of years of stimulus, but share prices have now come down so much that, that you're paying better multiples than you were back then. This is why a lot of folks are out there saying the final shoe hasn't dropped on tech yet. And below these, call it the mega cap tech and some of the mid cap tech, there are still some pretty high prices that you have to pay. Even a company like Shopify that has grown at a rate similar to Amazon back in their first five or six years as a public company, Shopify today isn't generating quite the same amount of cash that Amazon was back then. And as a result, the valuation on that business looks pretty darn expensive. And that's an example of one where, as, we, as we've been talking about, you want to see cash flow generation in the first decade of that business when it's out in the public. And for companies that still aren't showing that yet, their prices still have quite a bit further to fall. Now, I'm not gonna predict what's gonna happen in the future, but we're certainly not allocating into those types of tech businesses in this particular environment. Do you think that there's been this narrative out here that, that high inflation is sort of like a permanent re-rating of tech, that you know, tech, tech companies for a long time now are gonna be worth a lot less because of this high inflation, particularly if it stays with us. I mean, do you think that's fair? I think that's a little bit narrative. Um, I think you know, the market's obviously forward-looking. And the issue with inflation is that we can't get bailed out of inflation. Uh, there's no money that the government can print to just save the economy here. 
everyone's got to sit around for a while until inflation finally steadies itself and then we're allowed to grow more again. One of my, one of my hopes is that it, it gets people to focus more on real growth rates for companies. Because again, as, as, as growth investors, we're looking for companies that are penetrating. And if you're a business and you're growing seven or eight percent right now, you're not growing. You're, you're just passing through price increases. You're not actually increasing your base and giving yourself more customers to sell in more products to. Uh, so we definitely think in inflation, which is, is not something that at least uh, you know, our generation of investors have had to deal with um, for many in their entire professional careers, the, the unknowns of dealing with a new issue like this is why we think the multiples have come down so low. But we do not think that this level of multiple re-rating properly reflects the durability of many of these businesses. And that's of course why we remain invested in the companies that we are and we're finding more risk in the portfolio where we can. You alluded to narrative and it's interesting because you know if you know since we're quants, you know, if you look at the data in terms of are high rates better for value versus growth, you know, the data is very, very mixed. I mean, maybe slightly, but not by a lot. And so, you know, but narrative can take hold here in the short term. And so you you sort of had this year this idea, high rates are coming, inflation's coming, we need to, you know, we need to buy value, we need to sell growth. But you know, may, maybe with the the long term data, it doesn't hold up as well as many people think. Lars did some work around the 10 year. You want to share some of the findings that you saw there? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Lars, I'm the, the quant here. And so um, a lot of this stuff that I do can be related to rates and inflation, uh, especially recently. And so one of the things we found was that multiples obviously move um, in the opposite direction of, as rates do m most of the time. Uh, but an interesting thing is if you look at multiples over time for the S&P 500 or for tech as a whole, they're more related to growth rates and uh, margins than they are the interest rates. And so if you run a regression on the multiples, uh, a lot of the times you'll find that the interest rate is actually not statistically significant once you account for these margin and growth rates. Uh, that being said, those margins and growth rates often move with the interest rates. So as interest rates move up, uh, cash is not as available. And so you start to see those margins compress a little bit. Um, and so in theory, as you're valuing a company many years out, um, instead of taking down your multiples, one of the things that you can look at is how are the margins going to change and how are those growth rates going to change if inflation uh, you know, stays where it is if it comes down and you can sort of model it that way. Which is sort of funny. We're willing to be more optimistic on multiples in the long run than we are, say, some of the growth rates and margin profiles to get there. Yeah, you know, one of the other interesting things with inflation, I was listening to this, I don't know if you heard this podcast uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy did with Oswath Damodoran a, a while back, but, you know, he, he was kind of talking about tech and inflation. And one of the things he highlighted is we really don't know, forgetting about the discounted cash flow part of this, we really don't know how these tech businesses are going to hold up to inflation because we've never seen it. So people assume inflation is bad for tech businesses. But the reality is, you know, we don't know whether someone's going to cancel their Netflix subscription. You know, we don't know a lot about the pricing power of these businesses necessarily in an inflationary environment. So, you know, it may not be as bad on the business side as a lot of people think. I mean, do you agree with that? Well, this is where we believe traditional investment rules apply, which is how good is your market share and how good is your pricing power? Because Instagram ads are 
so much more expensive today than they were five years ago, 10 years ago. And as we look out into the, is there still, is the market share there to maintain the captivity of that audience or that real estate? And so Instagram ads are gonna cost a lot five years from now. And that's one of the biggest shakeouts that you saw in, in tech was you had so many of these direct consumer brands that were trying to operate these independent websites and they were, uh, they were advertising on social media and then inflation hits and you see digital ad prices go nuts everywhere and it actually priced a lot of businesses out of the ecosystem of being able to acquire customers on social media. So that to us is an example of, of a very healthy business uh, to own in an inflationary environment because I can't predict who the advertisers are gonna be five years from now, but I know that that's the place where consumers are and consequently, whoever's got the money, that's where they're gonna be uh, putting their products and services in front of people. Now, again, going back to some of these capital intensive or these price declining industries, that is where there is a lot of inflation risk because again, taking the Tesla example, their capital expenditures are incredibly inflation sensitive because you're talking about people and you're talking about parts and machines. And that's very expensive. And when you're in a declining price market with rising input costs, who can forecast the margins of that? And it's one of the big reasons why the auto industry has been so notoriously cyclical is because of some of the dynamics that inflation and interest rates can play into it. It seems like to your point, I mean, we really need to look at these as probably individual businesses rather than technology as a whole. You know, if you look at all businesses but tech, some will do well in an inflationary environment, some won't. And, you know, people, I think, tend to put tech like all in one basket. But the reality is, like you said, I mean, some of these are businesses that are probably built to do very well in an inflationary environment and some of them are probably ones that aren't. And so marketplaces, you know, captive advertising platforms, even the, even the cloud enterprise software folks, they have a lot of pricing power. Their only drawback is they don't get to flex it very quickly because uh, they tend to renew their, their contracts at least annually. So there's some lag to, to that inflationary uh, pricing pressure coming through. But there are definitely spots within tech. You know, our largest positions right now are ServiceNow and, and Meta. And we believe those two businesses have stronger pricing power than 95% of you know, the other investable choices out there in the public. You know, the one area I would also share that we, we think is pretty interesting is the payments ecosystem as a whole. So you've got Visa and MasterCard, which have obviously held up, who, who's, whose durability has outperformed anyone's expectations, even with many of the, the, the blockchain, you know, fears last year. Um, so you've got them as the backbone, but then you've also got these newer online uh, payment processors that are um, dethroning the Fiserv's and, and WorldPays of the world. These are companies like Stripe and Adyen and DLocal, where once this software gets installed, that is how these companies are collecting their revenue, basically for the lives of those businesses. And so when you're looking for businesses, or excuse me, for companies whose revenue is gonna naturally rise with prices or with inflation, the payments ecosystem is a particularly good one because as money supply increases, prices rise across the market, we don't have to predict which categories and industries are gonna rise their prices because we've got the payments ecosystem drawing in its revenue from all, from a very diversified set of companies. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna move on and, and talk about um, sort of how we might think about like constructing a quantitative strategy in this space or whether that's even possible in, in a minute. But first I wanna ask you about private companies because I know, I believe your, your ETF was the first ETF that was able to hold a private company. 
Um, and I know you have a lot of experience in that space. And you know what you t tend to see right now in the private company space, I think, is some degree of denial in terms of the multiples have come down a lot on the public companies, but a lot of private companies don't want to do down rounds. They don't want to admit the businesses are worth less. And, and I'm wondering sort of to get, I just wanted to get your take on that, like how you think about valuations in the private space right now and how they relate to what's going on in the public space. Uh, well, it's a, in short, it's a pretty bad time to invest in the private space um, for the reasons you listed, but also because if, if you were a good private company, there was an incredible window to go public over the past two years. And most of them did. You had Airbnb come out. Uh, you had a number of other you know, smaller and mid-cap tech companies you know, come onto the scene. Um, so now that that window is closed, you're asking private market investors not only to take this valuation risk because they haven't necessarily adjusted their prices as quickly, but now you're also asking them to take more liquidity risk than is normal. So you're asking about analogs back to, to 99 and 2000. The IPO window more or less just completely shut. Uh, I think it was, when did Netflix go public? Was it 2004? So you're, you're talking about a three or four year period of, of nothing. And so we're, we're on the sidelines on the private side right now. Uh, as you mentioned, the Airbnb was the example of the private investment we had when we came public. Uh, and then they obviously became a public company and that allowed us to adjust it in our portfolio uh, in a beautifully tax efficient way. Uh, but as we look going forward, you know, we're, we're being patient on the private side because we're also seeing other private investors try to start make more, try to start to make more investments in the public market given the relative attractiveness of prices and assets there. So. I don't think um, the average investor is missing out right now by not accessing uh, private companies. One of the things we've been looking at, you know, whenever as, as a value investor, one of the things I always do is whenever I see price go down on something, I get interested in it, which is not, not necessarily the right thing, but that, that is sort of the way I do it. And we've, we've been looking at like thinking about constructing a quantitative strategy in this space. And, you know, one of the challenges for quants in the growth space is, you know, if you look at the value space as a whole, value stocks on average will outperform. If you look at the growth space on a, as a whole, like just looking at something simple like sales growth rate or something, that universe will underperform, but the absolute best companies will come from that universe. So it becomes like this diamonds in the rough type thing, which is very hard to do quantitatively. And so I'm wondering what you think about that. What, what do you think about the ability to run sort of a quantitative strategy and be successful in the growth space? It's a great question. Um, one of the biggest things that you know we've done this year in adjusting our portfolio is uh, we used to similarly be attractive, uh, be attracted to share prices rapidly falling, uh, hitting 52-week lows, seemingly at some great discount to the historical valuation of the business. Uh, however, one of the things we've we've at least you know seen in this latest crisis is that there has been a collapse in fundamentals commensurate with the drop in share prices in a number of areas. So in our recent investor letter, one of the examples we shared was uh, Netflix. Netflix had had this incredibly large subscriber base that promised you know, another 5x increase in their subscribers over the next 10 or 15 years. And then recent um, fundamental events uh, suggested to the management team that perhaps their growth opportunity for subscribers was 70% lower. And the stock fell 70%. And that's perfectly justified given the potential smaller amount of addressable market for the company to go after. So that's an example of where you know, stepping into a lower share price, you're not actually necessarily buying more of the business because the outlook and expectations uh, have in fact truly changed. Now, by contrast, 
ServiceNow is the biggest example that you know I can I can give so far, which is you have a stock price that's more or less down with the Nasdaq about 30% year to date, but their free cash flow that's still up at least 20% this year. There's been maybe a 2% revision to their free cash flow estimates. So you're talking about essentially no change to the fundamentals of the business, which means that that 30% drop in share price actually reflects a 50 or 60% drop in the price to buy that company because the fundamentals have continued to accumulate. So I would, I would start there if I were trying to build a quantitative strategy. I would look past the share price decline into the multiple decline for companies that are still compounding cash. Um, and uh, Lars, you actually did a, a, a little more work here as well that I, I think is worth sharing. Yeah, sure. Uh, so on top of that, uh, we've run studies to sort of find the, you know, the, the factors that move stocks. And we found that with uh, a few industries in particular, energy as an example, about 60% of the movements have to do with the sector as a whole. So a lot of that in energy is due to oil prices changing. Um, whereas in tech as a whole, about 30% of the movement in stocks is related to the sector as a whole. So if you are going to be running some sort of quantitative strategy, uh, tech is actually a great bucket to look in to find those diamonds in the rough uh, because there's gonna be the outperformers and hopefully they'll be able to show themselves um, ahead of time. Whereas a lot of the, picks in the energy space are taking a bet on energy. And one more I'll add on top of that, um, because we, we did a lot of similar work around the 52-week the lows and stuff like that. And Lars actually found that the, um, the number of new highs that a company achieves is actually a better predictor as to whether or not it's a long-term compounder. And that's a fascinating one to me because there's so much built into that. You think at first you're like, oh, well, that's that's a momentum play. But no, because you, you can layer in valuation multiple work there because maintaining new highs, part of that is management teams that are keeping market expectations low enough that they can serially outperform it. And you know, if we, if we, if we want to get into some of the more technical aspects of growth investing, Stock prices don't go up because revenue goes up. They go up because revenue exceeds the expectations that the market has built into it. And so finding these situations of, like I mentioned, share prices that achieve record numbers of new highs has been also a very interesting place to look where we found some of the highest quality businesses. Yeah, and, and listening to your response to that, I mean, it seems like growth is a place where you want to blend the quant with the discretionary together because looking at your analysis of Netflix and service now, like there's no way I'm going to quantify that, you know, so my pure quant strategy probably wouldn't work in that space, but like what you guys are doing in terms of bringing it together seems, seems to be the way to do it versus value where maybe we could run a pure quantitative approach. Yeah, we'll see. You know, we've all, we've all got our investment approaches that we, you know, very, very diligently uh, execute. Uh, but I, I think in, you know, people always ask for investing can't be it can't be learned overnight because there is the uh, there is the, the the nature of the job that is learned from the experience of investing versus the study of investing. And it's it, over time, it's it's clearly folks you know, we were talking about Buffett at the beginning of this. He has allowed himself to adapt to new industries. And that is one of the hardest things you know to do as an investor is to be an expert in an area and you know, think that, well, gosh, I can generate alpha over time as an expert in this space. But if that space just is not gonna do well for some set of factors, 
it doesn't matter how well you know it. And you know, getting back to some of the things we were saying earlier, my background is primarily in consumer internet. And consumer internet has, has done fabulously over the last 15 years. But as you see with Netflix, there isn't quite the remaining growth opportunity today for some of these assets as there, as there has been over the past decade. And as an organization right now, we're, we're forcing ourselves to become more knowledgeable about this cloud enterprise space because we think it's going to be one of the most exciting. So if you, if you, if you only spend time you know, putting a lot of you know, quantitative measures on one industry, uh, that's where I'd point the gun. I want to ask you about earnings because, you know, one of the things we've seen so far is I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think a lot of what's gone on so far has sort of been a multiple re-rating for technology stocks. And, and then you've got the debate out in the market right now where a lot of people are saying, well, the next shoe to drop is earnings are going to fall. So now you're, you've got these lower multiples, but now these lower multiples are going to be applied to lower earnings as well. And I'm sure this is different for every technology company, but I'm just wondering for your thoughts on this idea that we've got this major earnings drop coming in the future for technology as a whole. Well, we likely have an earnings drop coming not just within tech, but, but, but within a lot of places. And this is where I think investors have to, uh, you know, ha have their own you know, conversations with themselves about what is the duration of your fund? Uh, what is the level of volatility you can stomach? Because I, multiples right now are very attractive. And the work that we've done is, yes, there, there could be a 10% negative earnings revision to a number of our portfolio companies. But it's entirely possible that multiples are up 10 or 15% by the time those revisions come into place. So when we've done the you know, high, medium, you know, low expectations around you know, what's going to happen if earnings adjust down, we believe the multiples are just too attractive right now uh, to give up the opportunity uh, to miss out on any recovery because at least for the companies we own, uh, it is very difficult to envision 25% or greater hits to their earnings this year. And I think on top of that, uh, one of the things that makes the industries that we look at really attractive are the underlying fundamentals of the company are not cyclical. So uh, software as a service or cloud software, for example, those revenues keep coming every year um, on top of the base that they're growing. And so while prices of these stocks are gonna move up and down, uh, and you, some see that as a cyclical, uh, it's really the underlying is moving straight line up and to the right while the prices move, which allow you to get better prices. Whereas some of the other industries, the underlying fundamentals of the company are moving cyclically with the rest of the economic market. And so that is sort of why we're able to pick off good prices of good companies in this space. One of the questions that we like to ask, and we like to think about it to ourselves, is this idea of these pre-mortems. So when it's, you know, that's the idea of when you have conviction about an idea, what where you might be wrong about it. So I'm curious if you think about technology, and again, we can't just lump all technology companies into one bucket because as we've talked about, there's different qualities and characteristics and factors that are important that go into the better performing companies versus the ones that aren't. But if if we were to think about tech and, and, and trying to sort of think where some of this might be wrong, if we were to look five or 10 years from now and so, you know, some of these names don't outperform, I mean, what might, what might cause that? Can you think of anything that might result in under, relative underperformance? Uh, you know, as growth investors, we have a very natural optimism bias. And uh, that can, that can you know, hit you like a bucket of cold water in the face sometimes. Um, if, 
if I had a, so we talked about growth drivers earlier uh, in this. We talked about mobile phone adoption over the past 20 years, creating opportunities. Uh, we talked about um, uh, the internet ex exploding as an additional distribution channel. Uh, and we talked about regu regulation. Uh, regulation can create opportunities for growth companies. It's built natural, tons of natural monopolies in our own finance industry. Um, but it can also uh, very quickly uh, shatter companies and not necessarily by separating them, um, but by, so to use a, a, a very plausible example, if you were to look at Meta's revenue growth and Google's revenue growth and some of our largest technology companies, um, most of their growth is in fact coming from outside of the United States. It is not um, difficult to imagine a future in which countries say, hey, China shut down its borders to outside technology and they got a ton of thriving technology businesses inside their economy. It is entirely plausible that there's a future of supremely more aggressive regulation that completely alters the fundamental profiles of these companies that have been compounding for years. So I would say aggressive regulation measures is at the, at the top of the list of potential surprises. Uh, technology development, this, there's, you know, folks have, have seen, uh, gosh, these companies disrupted these old companies. So who are they going to get disrupted by next? That, that is not a, a narrative that we are seeing evidence um, of actually happening. I gave the Visa and MasterCard example earlier where it turns out most of the fintech companies that are being successful in some way or another are actually writing on top of the, of the Visa or MasterCard network. So we don't see surprise technology advancement uh, as, um, uh, as an enormous risk, but the regulation one can just completely change the game. Do you think there'd be any validity? Like I'm thinking of Microsoft. Like I think it's it's when you look back to 2000, you know, it, I think it might have had a PE of 50 or 60. And then we went through that bear market. And then something like from 03 to like 2009, Microsoft's business tripled or something. Like its earnings tripled, but its stock went nowhere because it was just expensive. And I think investors felt burned just necessarily by tech in general. And so it took a long time for investors to realize the value of Microsoft. And then over the last like decade, I don't know what Microsoft has done. It's probably been a, you know, a great performing stock as the price ultimately caught up with the fundamentals. But do you think there's a risk to that maybe with some of these companies or, or maybe not? Oh, is there a risk that we're treading water for a while? Yeah, that we're just, it's, it's sort of dead money. Well, that's partially that's what's happened a bit over the past 18 months, driven a lot by uh, what I'll describe as the surprise CapEx. So Amazon overbuilt its footprint. Uh, Meta bought back shares at the wrong time uh, and also ramped up its CapEx to, to user numbers that you know, they haven't quite lived up to. Uh, so the, the expansion in, in the capital expenditure budgets of these companies has definitely scared investors about what the free cash is going to generate. So when we look, when we look forward, um, you actually have both of these management teams with pretty good governance structures uh, beginning to communicate that they're not going to continue growing their capex at those rates. So even if the macroeconomic issues are slow, and you know, revenue growth isn't that terrific and pricing is you know, mediocre, these businesses actually have the ability to naturally expand their free cash flow simply off of a more rational CapEx base. 
So that's one of the few things that kind of gives us comfort about holding these companies down here at these prices. Uh, I actually think they're, I, th I think Microsoft is an outstanding example because it, it was, it was a very neutral stock. I think it was from 2011 to 2014 or something like that. And it very may, may well be the case that we're sitting in a very similar example with that with Meta and Amazon today. However, as you pointed out, that 2013 to 2023 run, or 2022 run of, of Microsoft has been nothing short of astounding. And again, we think Meta and Amazon have the characteristics of a Microsoft that position it where even if these are flat stocks for a couple of years, they are still building up the time and users and products to be really big compounders over a longer time period than that. Yeah, I think that probably highlights the importance of your patience and discipline in holding these names. Because like you pointed out, and I think Lars pointed out earlier, the businesses that you're buying, that you're holding in the portfolio, you know, they're improving their underlying fundamentals and the stock will eventually follow, but you might have to be patient and you might have to sort of wait there. So just in terms of that, I'm curious, what is your, um, you know, of the portfolio of stocks that you hold, you know, what's your average holding period? Would you say, you know, generally, is it multiple years that these things are, are held in the portfolio? It's a, it's a good question. The fund, we've been operating this fund for three and a half years now. Uh, I'd say probably about five of our 25 stocks have more or less been in the fund over that entire period. But you're also, you know, talking to an emerging manager uh, that has spent the past three and a half years, you know, doing all sorts of different research, trying to find the best possible companies to hold. So if you look at our portfolio, portfolio turnover rate over those three and a half years, it has shrunk considerably. You know, we've gone from 200% portfolio turnover, you know, now we're down to the 60 to 80% range right now. Uh, it is for our strategy, it is our anticipation to continue to drive that turnover lower. But again, I'm not I'm not going to predict, you know, quite what uh, quite what the market holds for us in the future. Well, the nice thing is the ETF is very tax efficient. So <laughs> just a couple more questions here. I'm, I'm curious, you know, I mean, you've been through a lot of different market cycles and obviously studied market history. And one of the things with, you know, when you look at the S&P 500 over a long period of time, if you were to take like snapshots of the S&P over every decade and the top holdings in the S&P, um, you know, businesses change, capitalism and markets change a lot. And so those names tend to be very different over, you know, each decade. Um, you know, it used to be railroads and, you know, maybe AT&T was in there and then IBM and what happened in the 70s. And then, you know, but since the 2000s, it's been a lot of technology in there and there still is a lot of technology. Technology is very heavily weighted in the top um, names in the market. Do you think that that's likely to continue that those the, 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 the most valuable companies in the market will be centered around something around technology? Um, and that trend is just here to stay. Um, and maybe technology in the future could be find, defined very differently than we're defining it today. But uh, I'm just curious in your thoughts on that. Yes and no. So if you look back at 99-2000, um, I'm pretty sure it was Cisco. So there was, there was a lot of physical networking equipment that was growing really quickly at the time. One of the things that does, everyone talked about this, you know, stock market boom and internet boom of 99, there was an equivalent uh, CapEx boom 
from all of these management teams that were saying, oh God, we need to compete with this thing that's the internet and we need to buy all these, you know, all these routers and network equipment in order to become internet companies overnight. And that was one of the biggest mistakes a lot of management teams made during that period, but it pushed a lot of networking companies into the, uh, into the top uh, of, the, of the index at the time. So I, I don't think networking equipment is, is coming back anytime soon. Um, you know, to the top of the index, it's it's one of these categories of declining prices. You know, heavy capex, lots of competitors. Um, within the uh, digital advertising space, or in communications, as we've been talking about with Meta, it is very difficult for us to imagine a future in which those companies are not in the top ten. You're just we are we're not seeing. Um, like I mentioned, the disruption truly taking place. The only reasons that we sell stocks as growth investors is if that we begin to see a, a, a material deterioration in the market share of that business, um, or because sometimes we'll invest in earlier stage stuff, you've got a management team that time after time fails to deliver on you know, the goals that they set for the company because it means that their, their product and technology is not nearly as disruptive as they're advertising it to be. Um, so I'd say those are the two big drivers. And in, in, in the big, if if we were to say Amazon, Google, and Meta were our three biggest tech companies, then I would throw Microsoft in there. I'd, I'd I'd take a friendly side bet that those four companies are are all in our top ten another decade from now. And then I would I'd, I'd I'd place another bet that says that these emerging enterprise cloud companies uh, are the next potential entrance uh, into there. Uh, but I do not think that you know we are now at the beginning of a cycle. We are going to begin to see uh, big tech names fall out of the top index. From our perspective, it's more of a, a risk management approach of, well, how much potential is left and who are the likely future entrants uh, into that? This has been great, guys. Um, and we uh, have a standard closing question we like to ask all of our guests. I think you can go anywhere with it. It can be tech related or it can just be, you know, general investing sort of wisdom and knowledge. But the question is based on your experience uh, and research in the markets, if you could impart one lesson or one piece of wisdom to the average investor, what would that be? You guys asked me this in advance and I tried to cycle through like a hundred different ways to answer it. Um, all I'll say is that it, it, investing, it, it's like any professional discipline. Uh, whether you're a, a professional athlete or a professional poker player or you know a, a professional you know utility repairman, there's a hundred different things that you happen to be doing correctly. You know when you've achieved you know call it the, the top echelon you know within your within your within your professionalism, and investing is no different. Um, you know I, I I've been investing now for uh, almost 18 years. And there's mistakes that I made in the first seven years that are very difficult to think back upon. But each one of them built little sort of muscles and awareness and um, uh, tools, you know, that I've been carrying with me. And so I, th I think the uh, it helps you stay humble as an investor to look back and know how many mistakes you've made. You're going to keep making an enormous amount of mistakes in the future. And so the only thing that you can control is every single time you make a mistake or a bigger mistake, what is the thing that you've learned? You need to take the time to reflect on what you need to learn from that or something you need to change in your process to at least remove the potential of that mistake to come back again because you're going to make a new one coming up. So that's what I would recommend from a process development standpoint. Great. Great. That's good stuff. Good stuff. Well, Rob and Lars, thank you guys very much for joining us. If people want to learn more about 
your firm, the ETF you guys run, or anything else, your research, where can they go? Twitter is probably the best. Yeah, Add Up Holdings. Uh, we share a lot of research there. And uh, from there, you'll find everything else we do. All right, guys. Thank you very much for joining us. Hope you guys have a good, good rest of your summer. Thank you. Good to see you, Justin. Check. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.